The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Friday, March 4th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Brett Hankinson was found not guilty on all charges for firing his police weapon wantonly into an apartment in Louisville, Kentucky, the night of March 13th, 2020. The apartment that Hankinson fired into belonged to the neighbors of Breonna Taylor, who, as we know, was needlessly, tragically killed as Louisville police served a no-knock warrant, though they say they knocked. Hankinson said, or tried to say, under oath, that Taylor's life was needlessly taken. That was objected to. He also tried to offer an apology to the residents of the apartment he fired into. I saw Ms. Knapper and Mr. Etherington up here for the first time, and uh, I felt sincere empathy for them. That was something, if my daughter was shot at or bullets came into our house, that would be very concerning, and I apologize to her for that. And Ms. Taylor's family, it was just... She didn't need to die that night. Those remarks were stricken from the record, but of course, the jury heard them. The jury heard all five days of testimony in what was expected to be a two to three week trial. The other officers, the ones whose bullets actually struck Breonna Taylor, took the Fifth Amendment. This left Hankinson as the one officer facing the most serious charges. He was not, and this point was made repeatedly by both the prosecution and the defense, he was not charged with killing Breonna Taylor. His alleged crimes were to be evaluated on their own merits. Now, going in, it seemed that the charges did well fit the deeds. Wanton endangerment under Kentucky law is extreme indifference to the value of human life as committed by a person who deliberately engages in conduct that creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another person. Hankinson sprayed a neighbor's apartment with bullets. He fired 10 times. There was no gunfire coming from that apartment. There were people in that apartment, including little children. But Hankinson was found not guilty, which might seem surprising, especially in light of the fact that Kim Potter, the officer from Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, was found guilty of the most serious manslaughter charge when she mistook her taser for a gun. The difference is maybe the law, maybe the jury, maybe the performance at the trial. I watched all of the Potter trial, and I did not watch all of the Hankinson trial, but I did go back and watch all of his testimony. And this might be the difference. He was much, much better as a witness. Relatedly, the lawyers in Minnesota were very good, some of them on the same team that successfully prosecuted Derek Chauvin. The prosecutors in Kentucky were less so. Long pauses, reading from documents for long stretches, and what I regard as letting Hankinson lead the way in establishing the narrative. If you just started watching the testimony without being oriented as to if it was direct examination or cross-examination, you might not know, which is bad for a defense attorney. She gave him so many chances, she gave Hankinson so many chances just to lay out what he saw as the facts that mattered, the facts as they occurred to him. He had a laser pointer. He talked directly to the jury. He was a powerful witness. Now, I'm going to play some a clip of the trial, and it's not the most important part. It just, I think, demonstrates the communication style at play. You'll hear at times Hankinson's audio fades a little bit. That's because he's swiveling in his chair, looking the jury directly in the eye. It seemed to work the first voice you will hear is Prosecutor Barbara Whaley. 
And while you're in there in that very small vestibule, before entry was made, before any breach was made, did you not see this door here with a big three on it? No, ma'am. As I said before, there were detectives standing in here. Lieutenant Hoover himself is 6'7", 250, 80 pounds. He's a large guy. Detective James is carrying a barricade shield, uh, which is, takes up the space of an extra person. So that is, is, is at least two large figures between me and seeing any such doors here. Nor do I have any reason to be searching around for extra doors because my attention is focused on apartment four until Sarpe comes out of apartment eight upstairs. Hankinson offered plausible explanations for his actions. The prosecutor took long stretches between questions that didn't yield fruit. Now contrast that with Kim Potter under oath being needlessly argumentative on simple points, which I think hurt her credibility. Pretty good at, at de-escalating situations as a as a crisis negotiator. Fair. Yes. Uh, so you had some experience in stressful situations doing that. No. So you were a crisis negotiator, but never experienced a stressful situation. We talked to people. Talk to people in crisis. Yes. Okay. For twenty six years, you were a patrol officer, right? Yes. And you. Um, talked about doing a lot of traffic stops during that career, correct? I did some traffic stops. Okay. I can't point to the quality of the defendant's testimony as dispositive. Legal experts do say when the defendant testifies in their own trial, everything comes down to that. If that's true, Potter was not a great witness, and Hankinson was. I'll also acknowledge there might be my own internal sexism at play. Uh, Potter, though police officer for two decades, is a woman, and Hankinson seemed to have a lot of authority. He had a upright bearing and a military buzz cut, and he sp spoke succinctly. But, you know, many of those are male traits. Maybe I'm seeing things through those eyes, but maybe the jury did too. I think the biggest difference might have just been the makeup of the juries, the Minnesota jury versus the Kentucky jury. Not necessarily racially, just dispositionally. In fact, the Potter jury had nine white people on it, but media requests for an official tally of the racial makeup of the Kentucky jury was denied. Observationally, the ABC affiliate reported, quote, the jury is made up of 10 men and five women. At least three of the jurors are people of color. Why 15? Three alternates, in case you were wondering. After the judge in the Potter case gave a light sentence, I said, I still thought it counted as accountability and fit the description of justice. After Hankinson was fully acquitted, it's harder for me as an observer to make that case. Hankinson never wavered from his testimony that he thought he recognized the sound and mu muzzle flash of an AR-15 being fired from inside Breonna Taylor's apartment, but there was no AR-15 recovered at the scene. And 10 rounds into a different apartment? It didn't sit well with me, but 12 Kentuckians who listened to all the testimony disagreed. Afterward, there was a small protest in the streets of Louisville, much smaller than the crowd gathered in Minnesota. And in other news of a killing by police officers, on Tuesday, police in Philadelphia shot and killed a 12-year-old boy, Thomas Sidero, who they said had fired on them, shattering a patrol car's window. Police recovered a handgun from the boy who was shot in the back. No protests were reported in Philadelphia in the fatal shooting of this white 12-year-old. Philadelphia police investigators and the district attorney's special investigations unit are looking into the shooting.
On today's show, here on The Gist, it is an Antoine Tig. You know that means lobsters and corrections. That'll be fun for you, the nitpickers. I'm a little defensive, but I gotta own it. But first, Mike Sachs is a comedy writer and a writer about comedy. He's a Vanity Fair editor who's written two of the best books where he interviews comedians about their craft. But his own works are quite unique. Sachs will take a genre of movie or a memoir, and he will fully commit to an all-out parody which never, ever winks at the audience. He maybe wants to amuse you. He definitely wants to fool you. He's done novelizations of Burt Reynolds-esque movies that don't exist, audio dramas of John Hughes-type films that don't exist. And right now, he's out with a huge, sprawling memoir of a right-wing blowhard pundit who doesn't exist, but really could. Passing on the right. My ups, my downs, my lefts, my rights, my wrongs, and my career so far in this bizarre world of comedy by Skippy Batty Battinson, who we couldn't get, so we got Mike Sachs. He agreed to join us up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Mike Sachs is committed to the bit. Mike Sachs writes comedy books and actually produces comedy material. And originally he was someone who worked for Vanity Fair and he interviewed a lot of comedians and he had a couple books about comedy where he wasn't trying to fool anyone, poking a dead frog and here's the kicker, two of those. And then he said, why don't I become the literary version of Andy Kaufman? And he's been coming out with content that, I don't know, has 
either fooled or annoyed many of its customers. There was uh, Slouchers, which was definitely a lot like Singles, a novelization of a movie that you said, wait a minute, did this movie exist? Same with Stinker Let's Loose. Very, well, a little BJ and the Bear, a little a little Smokey and the Bandit. Before I even get to his new project, I'll read some of the reviews of the Audible original Passable in Pink, right? So this is a this was, he was on the show talking about this, and it was clearly an absurdist comedy of Pretty in Pink. Here is a one-star review. There is not one single original thought in Passable in Pink. Even the title reminds me of Pretty in Pink. This person was pretty upset. The new book is called Passing on the Right, and it's written by Skippy Batty Battison, who's, as you know, a right-wing radio and cable commentator. The subtitle is my ups, my downs, my lefts, my rights, my wrongs, and my career so far in this bizarro world of comedy. Batty does it all. He's really Mike Sachs. I got to get, I got to poke the live frog that is Sachs's brain. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you. Why this idea? Because you were going through genres, right? You, were, you did singles. This is a little different. It's not retelling the story of a famous movie, let's say. Well, I have a few I had a few idea for novelizations, fake novelizations to continue the joke. And one was a, um, a losing your virginity type movie from, say, the late 70s, uh, losing it with Tom Cruise. And then another idea I had was to put out a novelization to a non-existent movie that would have been the worst movie ever to have won the best Academy Award. So what would that have been? Would that have been... Um... You know, would you have taken on Out of Africa? That was probably the most boring one. Uh, oh, the big, Crash. The big top, Crash. Everyone hates Crash, yeah. Yeah, all these shit movies that, you know, <laughs> have a blind person, a mentally challenged adult, and an ast a former astronaut, basically. That's it. Those are the elements. <laughs> but I... um I just thought I wanted to work on something new and, you know, in the air, in the zeitgeist, as I say, even though I hate that word, I was noticing a lot of comedy people going right mm -hmm. or, you know, they had been going right and just now found their niche, found their audience and went further right. So I wanted to do that combined with a parody of all these shit memoirs by comedians. Most of them are written as if they were uh, being delivered on stage, that they were transcripts. So I wanted to combine the far right element with the shitty aspect of comedy, uh, comedian memoirs. And this is what came out. It's very much a COVID book. I mean, I, I had COVID. I barely left my room for a year, not because of the sickness, just because I was uh, hibernating. And this is what I wanted to do. And it was um, it's fun to write in a shit voice, especially if the guy is an asshole like this one is. <laughs> and he's basically everything I hate about America. Basically. So that's good. So you got it out of your system, except it doesn't seem like you did because I wonder, this is what I wonder. I wonder if you as the author, and this is even what happens when someone writes a villain or someone writes a detestable character, that you wind up getting inside the character's head and maybe identifying with him a little bit. Did any of that happen? Not liking him, but identifying. I definitely identify him. I mean, he's based off of people I grew up with in the D.C. area. I grew up in Northern Virginia and Maryland, and I grew up with these entitled fucks who went to Georgetown Prep. I went to public school and we used to get into fights all the time with these assholes. I would is, go down to where Kavanaugh went to school. That's right? exactly right. That's where Kavanaugh went. And I had friends. And is he who your went... age? Is he? No, no. He, he is like 10 years older. Oh, but okay. I had friends who went to Georgetown Prep and 
I, you know, I know this type. I, I, I've had bottles thrown at me in Georgetown from out of their convertible white beamers. You know, this is a type I know really well. Mike, so, uh, for the record, does boof mean puke? A boof? It does mean puke. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. good. We Where'd broke you, some news here. Yeah. I mean, do you want to talk Maryland? Like, we can talk Maryland. Well, I'm just, you remember that from the hearing, right? He claimed that boof meant puke and everyone's like, no, it clearly means you're having sex. No, it does. It doesn't. It does mean boof in his, yeah, from, from his Garfield uh, calendar, (laughs) but it's definitely the type I knew and can't stand and dealt with in DC. You know, DC is a political town, a very bow tie wearing town, a very patriotic uh, red, white, and blue suspender type of town. I always felt out of place. I was never into the scene, the political scene, or even the comedy scene at that time, which was Mark Russell on the Capitol steps. Huh. So this, this person, I, trading, I do, I trading gap shuffle. Yes. Deficit rag, <laughs> right. Yes. Every he's written 4,000 songs. They all sound exactly alike. So it's really a very DC novel, a DC novel that is not discord records or Georgia Avenue, the record, the DC that I like. So I know this type of person. I would never want to hang out with this type of person, but I can tell you, I know the Brett Kavanaugh type, and that fucker is as bad as you think he is. When you were writing this book, did how did it? You said you hated this guy. You lived inside his head for eight months. What did it do for your general stress or anger levels? Because you know, there's that debate. It's either the pressure release valve, right, and you were able to use it that way, or I could also imagine it consumed you a little bit. It did consume me, but it, I think more than anything, it was the angriest book I ever wrote. And it really was going after everyone in comedy and everyone in American politics I fucking hate. So whenever I would see something on the news, it would end up that pissed me off, which was often it ended up in the book. And in fact, when I started the book, I had no ending. And it really was after watching those assholes attack the Capitol that I thought he has to end up at January 6th, leading the charge and then arrested for something he does in Nancy Pelosi's office. Well, he calls it, you know, an insurrection in quotes, but real life always outstrips parody because I was listening to uh, the Megyn Kelly show, as I sometimes do. And she had on a writer for, I think, the Washington Examiner. You know, Megyn said that she's this great chronicler of the January 6th insurrection. But, you know, her basic point was, sure, there were a couple bad guys there, but mostly good patriots who got swept up and didn't know they shouldn't have walked into the Capitol. Well, I just found this whole thing incredible. I mean, as I said, I'm from D.C. In D.C., you can't do anything. There's 50 different types of of cops, of agencies out there. I was almost once arrested for going into a Smithsonian carrying a soft drink. I I mean, literally people were arrested. I don't know if they still are on the on the D.C. Metro for eating food or having a drink. So the fact that these fuckers could get away with it for over three hours and no one came to to check it out or to try to stop it, it it was immediately clear that something very deep was going on here and they were told to stay away because there is no way in D.C. that would have happened without being told by that by the top. Do not go anywhere near these guys. And I mean, just imagine if these guys were, you know, the type you would see in Portland, Oregon, throwing rocks or Molotov cocktails or African-Americans. I mean, God knows what would have happened. Do you think that the comedy scene, I mean, there are a million and a half outlets and there's probably all kinds of comedy now. But do you think that it's in a good place? Is there um, a sameness to it? Is are enough different flowers and voices blooming? Well, on one hand, I do. Uh, I think that you would see 
talent that you would never see in the past. For instance, uh, the show Pen15, which I think is a work of genius, is almost like spooky good. I don't know if that would have been made. I know it wouldn't 20 years ago for NBC or CBS. So you have that element and you have new voices coming in, which aren't uh, white uh, Harvard lampooners, which I think is amazing. On the other hand, you have uh, late night shows, which I just think are impotent because I mean, think about how many jokes have been written and told about Trump and the GOP. I don't think it moved the needle one iota. I think it's just been yeah, a- probably it probably uh, gratified his ego. Exactly. I, I think it did nothing. And the people writing these jokes must have gone mad thinking about Trump for all these years and then seeing how little you know, you would hear in the past about Carson going on and telling a joke that, that, that we, the America was running out of toilet paper. And the next day there would be a run on toilet paper. There's no run on anything anymore. It's just too much out there. And I think it's totally impotent. Plus, what annoyed me is you have people like Jim Brewer, who's out there and he's a working comedian doing what he's doing. And then he, he's whether he was this way or not earlier, he finds that by leaning right, he now has an entirely new audience. So that is something that I had never seen unless it was like a born again Christian in Branson, Missouri. So that to me is a sign of um, comedy, which is not to me a good sign. I mean, when you have someone like Jim Brewer out there and his lodestar isn't, isn't set to goodness and what you should be going after, you know, mocking those who shouldn't be mocked. I don't think that's a good thing. Okay. So I think this is, this is great. This is a nuanced complaint. The late night shows are totally predictable and all they, they, they have the quote unquote right politics, but you're also critical. I agree with you. Well, I don't know if I would say critical. Jim Brewer is not my cup of tea and it did seem to be a cynical move for him to go to the right. So I, there's probably no correct answer on, so where should you be on the political spectrum except interesting? I guess, but do you find that interesting? I mean, I've watched Dennis Miller. I've watched Jim Brewer. It, it doesn't seem interesting to me, and it doesn't even no, seem- I, I, I was wondering about Dennis Miller, because it did seem like his going to the right did coincide with him just becoming less funny. Well, also, it was 9-11. He went crazy after 9-11. So I wanted to, I wanted an example where I could check myself to say, all right, this is a sample size of one. I don't want to just write off anyone who becomes more conservative as becoming less funny, just because, you know, that's my own sensibility. So I think a lot about Bill Maher, who, I don't know if he's- He's not, he's classically liberal, and I'm glad that Bill Maher is out there doing doing his thing. And in many ways, his show is more interesting and at least a little, a little different from all the other shows out there. Yeah, and I respect that he says how he feels, and I don't agree with it, but I think he certainly should say it. I don't necessarily find him funny and or as intelligent as, as he thinks of himself. But one of the things that really bothers me and uh, this has come on strong in the last two, three, four years is someone like what's his name? Jesse Waters. I'm yeah, forgetting the guy, his name the guy from Fox. Uh, Fox, who, yeah, was a Bill O'Reilly acolyte and now has his own show. That's this is show. very, very interesting, because in the past you would have conservatives who wanted to have a conservative version of uh, The Daily Show or what have you. And they never could pull it off. What this guy did was you he, he came across as a guy where you don't need a staff. You don't need jokes. What you need to do now is very simple. And that is to go to a homeless shelter or a bus depot or go into Chinatown and simply just mock the people. And the fact that this, uh, that people would find this funny and entertaining, I find shocking because it's really, to me, the opposite of what a comedy person should be doing. It's the 180 degrees difference between someone doing it for the right reason 
and someone doing it for the entirely wrong reason and making fun of someone's Asian accent or making fun of the fact that someone is dirty and maybe uh, smelly because they're a homeless person. That to me was a whole brand new realm that I had never seen before. But it is also to some extent an indictment of the sclerotic form that those late night shows, the guy at the desk fake daily show has done. I mean, it's been done so much. Maybe Sasha Baron Cohen's taken in a little bit of a different direction, but there are now 10 shows doing that. So of course we're going to get the right wing version. Totally. And quite frankly, you know, even though I am of the, uh, I don't like to think of myself as a lefty, more just a reasonable person. I always did find Jon Stewart a bit smarmy. And I find a lot of that comedy to listen to and, and to write a bit smarmy, but there has to be some sort of comedic satiric purpose and i just don't understand what the purpose is to go into these into a shelter or into chinatown and simply mock i mean to me there is no even an attempt to try to be satirical or funny or clever it's just um, a very brutish move and in fact in this book that i wrote he at one point um, one of his hobbies is to rate homeless people on the streets of new york city from one to five um cardboard boxes so he looks at it as sort of entertainment this is what he does and that's really what's bothering me i mean not just the fact you could do it i mean bill o'reilly would of course put it on the show but that so many people would find it funny and send around clips of this to themselves it's just to me i was astonished by that what's your take on gutfeld Gutfeld, I think, is uh, another case of um, people go to him because they want to hear what he has to say and i don't think there's any sort of cleverness or any sort of uh, comedy that's there. It's just you're going to someone who you you know you agree with and they agree with you. And it's just like uh, attending a rally of some sort. Skippy's comedy is a little bit like that. If you if he gets the audience, when he gets the audience. Oh, totally. And I mean, in the book, he, he, does, he doesn't even know about politics. He just gets into that because he is rejected from Last Comic Standing. So for him, it's just another thing to do until he finds his next niche. But for him, it works out because he has connections back in D.C. and he starts appearing at these uh, these association events in D.C., which is a very D.C. thing to do. You know, these comedians go in and perform for the Petroleum Association for a quarter of a million dollars. So that's how he finds his his step up into the podcasting world. Right. And he gets endorsed by all these groups like True Americans suggested reading American Library and the Advanced American Freedom Recommended Right Reading List. No, all those are bullshit. I just made those up. But D.C. Oh, is know. filled with, with that type of thing. I mean, filled. It could be one person in his basement and it becomes the American Family Value Association. The name of the book is Passing on the Right, My Ups, My Downs, My Lefts, My Rights, My Wrongs, and My Career So Far in This Bizarro World of Comedy by Skippy Batty Batson by, actually, Mike Sachs. Mike, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. And you just reading that uh, subtitle is exactly what I wanted. I wanted, I wanted even the subtitle to be horribly written. <laughs> so it's awful. And now the spiel. So I'm on Twitter, popular news site slash source for all 
discontent in our society. I come across this guy named Bob Goff. I hadn't heard of him before, but there he is. He has a video up and I will play some of it. Let me set you as to the visual. 60-year-old looking guy, red socks cap, standing before his well-appointed entryway, snowy white beard and white hair under the cap. Looks like he could be a professor on weekends or let's say the biographer of Joe Kennedy. Not John Kennedy, but the biographer of Joe Kennedy. That's more generationally appropriate, I think. So he starts speaking, and I find it inviting, though the presence of background music clues me into the fact that this whole thing is a bit more professionally produced than I had anticipated. Let's listen in. Have you ever met somebody who knows a ton more about you than you know about them? It's a little creepy. Because you think, like, we haven't hung out. Like, you shouldn't know that much about me. And that's exactly how I felt about Okay, I'll stop it there. What do you think he's going to say next? He knows more about you than you about him. So it could be the next person this guy's going to write a biography of. Remember, I just assumed he's a biographer of some sort. Or maybe he's going to tell the story of a young upstart who sought him out, a young fan, and this fan collaborated with Goff, and there's a mentor-mentee thing going on. I should mention, Goff seems like kind of a big deal. He has 400,000 followers. His Twitter bio says, author of New York Times bestseller, Love Does, Everybody Always, and Dream Big. Oh, from those titles, I can narrow it down to almost nothing. Again, so let's reset. He knows more about you than you know about him. Who is he talking about? Because you think, like, we haven't hung out. Like, you shouldn't know that much about me. And that's exactly how I felt about Jesus. I knew a ton about him. Oh, Jesus. That's how it was going to go, wasn't it? How did I not see that coming? You don't have to be omniscient to know that Jesus is right around the corner. I knew who his mom was. I, I knew his dad. I, I knew a bunch of information about him, but I hadn't actually done anything with him. I felt like I was stalking Jesus. Uh, hello, officers? Yes, please state your name. Uh, it's Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, Son of God. And what is the nature of your complaint? Well, I've been brave in the face of Roman soldiers, uh, dealt with a crown of thorns, uh, had this one passive-aggressive dude hanging around, Thomas. But I think I'm being stalked, stalked by a man with downy white hair and comforting background music. Okay, well, send a patrol car to your house right away. Uh, that could be complicated, officer. Oh, okay, where are you right now? I'm sort of everywhere, like all around us, kind of omnipresent. Okay, well, then, sir, how do you propose we get a restraining order? You see, you see the problem? Jesus, the one guy who it's impossible not to stalk. But the real reason I wanted to mention Goff was this bit. And I think the idea is uh, to get less distracted by all the information we're collecting about God and actually know God. See what he said there? It just says it lightly, but this whole thing is based around that word. He said, get less distracted. This tweet was presented with the hashtag, hashtag undistracted. So I clicked on the undistracted hashtag and about half the tweets under that hashtag were originated by Bob Goff or Bob Goff fans, Bob Goff related. But the other half were from activist Brittany Packnett Cunningham promoting her new podcast. So enough with the distractions, the noise, the billions of tweets. We got work to do. We're gonna do it together and we're gonna find our joy along the way. Over here, we've got our eyes on the prize. We are undistracted. 
So the hashtag undistracted is half Jesus stalker Bob Goff and half self-described intersectional news and justice podcast hostess Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Amber Ruffin, writer for Seth Meyers and host of her own show on Peacock, she's there under the hashtag supporting Packnett Cunningham, but in Bob Goff's corner, it's Roma Downey. He's touched by an angel. They're both, uh, Packnett Cunningham and Goff, just out to spread words of joy and uplift and promise, and they're totally getting in each other's way. And the audience of each for the other is, you guessed it, they're distracted. They're a distraction. So I ask this question to you, my listeners, in this, this Antan twig. Yeah, that's what this is all about. Is this an irony? Because at first glance, you'd say, what an irony. The two people are distracting each other under the aegis of being undistracted or undistractable. But when you think about irony, it's when that which is expected is 180 degrees upended. But given that the premise of each of these figures is that the world is full of distractions, then isn't the presence of a distraction to the hashtag undistracted, exactly what we would expect and therefore not an irony? I need to know what you think. Please email me at thegist at mikepesca.com or go to mikepesca.com, the website. There you will find, under the gist portion of the site, an invitation to become a lobstar because every Antoine Tig, every 21-day period, we issue corrections, amplifications, and we issue awards. And this is one such period. Remember last Antan Twig three weeks ago, I said you were the lobster. Not just words. In the coming days, we shall be sending you, if you are on the Mike Pesca newsletter, and you might be, I, f- I feel very self-promotional. Don't, don't get distracted. But um, if you are on, and if you're not, please sign up. We're going to send you an actual piece of lobster art. It's downloadable. It's suitable for framing, and we are planning something special, something extra. I can't say much more about what's extra. No further talk necessarily fairly taciturn, but MikePesca.com, sign up for that newsletter. So, correction, I pronounced the system of government in South Africa as apartheid. It is apartheid, hate, apartheid, how to remember it. This is the uh, most pristine example of the entire driving force of a regime working also as mnemonic device, apartheid. Hate. Stuart Berg writes in, in a segment, Vexillology Corner, where we discuss state flag Utah. The Utah flag doesn't feature a natural beehive. It features an antiquated man-made design known as a skep. Skeps aren't amenable for inspection for pests, which is mandatory in modern beekeeping. As a result, the image on Utah's flag and their road signs is not recognizable these days to a modern beekeeper. Stuart Berg identifies himself as a modern beekeeper. But that email was just the tip of the Stuberg because he went on in another email to say, you know, skeps are unfamiliar to most people and that's bad. But the really bad thing is skeps are illegal by literally depicting an illegal activity on the state's most prominent symbol. Utah is implicitly demonstrating a casual disregard for the rule of law. We passed it on to Ted Kay, and next time I see Mitt Romney, I'll tell him. And I also want to shout out as a very special listener to us, Mr. Kevin Bonham. Kevin Bonham, he tweets a lot. I'm at Pescami, P-S-E-A-M-I. And uh, Kevin, I see there a lot. And one day, a few days ago, I was saying like, now you're probably not an immunologist, though, according to statistics, a few of you listening may be an immunologist. And Kevin wrote in to say, I am indeed 
an immunologist. He first started listening just a month after he defended his PhD in immunology. Uh, I guess he used the white blood cells to defend that. Thank you. Now I want to use this space to say something of this ilk. Now, those of you listening, I suppose you are not a large animal veterinarian, though statistically speaking, maybe one of you is. So next, Antan Twig, we could check in if anyone self-identifies as a large animal veterinarian. You could define large however you want. Okay. Kevin, thank you for listening. You're the man. You're the immunology man, but you're not the lobster. Who is the lobster? Well, I bring you Mr. Adrian Stander. Hi, Mike. I'm delighted that the gist is back on the air. It's my favorite daily news-related podcast. I notice that you are now in charge of Peachfish Productions. As far as I know, both of these words, peach and fish, can be linked to your family name, Pesca. Was this indeed the genesis of the name? Best regards, Adrian. Adrian, it was. It was Pesca, pure peach in Italian, just one-to-one correlation. And the verb Pesca, uh, to fish, you know, fishing as uh, the sport or engaging in the activity in Spanish. So peach fish, a type of uh, Pesca-ing in two different Romance languages. And I further said, Adrian, thank you so much, because a lot of people were guessing about the origin of the name. Everyone got it wrong except you. Way to go. And then Adrian said, oh, perhaps worthy of a lobster, to which I had to tell him, yeah, it would have been had you not said that. I, we, we just like it to be a surprise, and you ruined it. So, Adrian, you are the sub-lobster. If the main lobster cannot serve, we will tap you to fill his or their duties. Which brings me to Mr. Derek Kanarek. Maybe Derek's last name is Kanarek, but I'm just going to go with Derek Kanarek. Hello, The Gist. In today's episode 3-1, I think there was an error. And then Derek started talking about the doses given to children of the COVID vaccine. Those 5 to 11 got a 10 microgram dose as opposed to the 30 microgram dose that adults got. And Derek wrote, the kids had their doses reduced by two thirds. This stood out to me as a high school math teacher. I listened to math spoken out loud. Reducing something by two thirds should leave a third remaining or five micrograms. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Derek didn't screw up the math that much. He just must have misheard what my baseline was. So he wrote in to correct me. He said, sorry if this should come across as pedantic. No, Derek, just incorrect. Sorry to rake you over the coals. I love high school math teachers. Uh, I just let it sit. I don't think I responded. But then Derek Kanarek got back in touch and said, wait, I have to blow the whistle on myself. My partner listened to the show and... I was told that I was incorrect and you were indeed correct. So it turns out that Derek Kanarek was quite a hysteric on matters numeric. But you know who wasn't? Well, I'll tell you who wasn't. And there is some joy in Casa Kanarek, Derek, because today we can announce that your partner, your unnamed partner, Mr. Ms. or Mix Kanarek, who knows if they even have your name, the Kanarek partner is the lobster of the Antan Twig, an honor that cannot be reduced by any amount. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions lobster artist and director of Nation Flummoxing Technologies. 
The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu Depperu Duperu, and thanks for listening. Thank you.